Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. My God, you know, the guest that we have today is a legend. I mean, he has so many companies, so many exits. I mean, I completely lost track. I mean, unbelievable. But I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, through all these different companies that he did, build, scaled, finance, exited. And then also he is up to something super exciting nowadays with his latest company. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mudu. Sudakar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Very excited to be with you. And I enjoy your podcast show. So you're doing a great service to the community. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mudo. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in India? Oh, great, man. I mean, I, that's my hometown, my home country when I grew up. So I love India and I love everything about India. So how was life growing up there? Because I'm sure it was a little bit different than being here in the U.S. I mean, eventually you came here for studies. But, uh, but, you know, it took a little bit, you know, you went through there, you know, getting the, uh, you know, the studies, the, the, you went to IIT, you know, there, I mean, what's the, what, what, were, what were you doing all the way up until, you know, coming to the U.S.? Yeah, no, look, India is like, I come from a small town uh, in India called Kakinara. So you have to look, um, growing up in India, it's also, it's a humbling experience, right? It's a, I'm a middle-class family person. My dad is a professor. We grow up there, and uh, my um, and it's it's like it's it's a good uh, working in uh, India is uh, I mean studying and growing up in India is a great experience for me. I went to schooling till twelfth uh, grade, and then I went to IIT to do my undergrad. Um, IIT is a very great place, right? You are, it's one of those places where it's one of the smartest of every city, every um, city and every state will come and and you have to compete and do well in the schools and colleges. So IIT, I learned a lot. I mean. It's probably my formative years as a human being, going to college like for all of us and also learn and staying in a dorm and interact with people and social aspects as well as the um, aspects of how to evolve in the uh, in the um, in your uh, life. So what, what pushed you to come to the U.S.? Oh, a uh, lot. I mean, it's like going to IIT is like it was brain drain in India back then, right? It's like in late 80s. So all, the, all of us are trained. One thing is like, study well in India and uh, and then apply for higher education. U.S. was the place to go to do master's and PhD. So it's the number one dream, right? American dream was for us is to come to America to learn and learn in terms of doing master's and PhD and start a startup and live the American dream. So that's what drove me to come here. The American dream. You got you to gotta respect that. I love that. And obviously, in your case, you came to, to Yale to do the studies. And then after that, you went to UCLA. And then, you know, like uh, you went into different companies like IBM, Bell Labs, uh, Silicon Graphics. But this was the most immediate step to getting started with your first company. So how was that process like of all of a sudden, you know, like things started coming together and, and, and you make that decision of, of, of giving your, your, your notice, that leap of faith. And you came to the U.S. already, so you had made it, you know, like you were making a good salary. I'm sure it was nerve-wracking all of a sudden, you know, to, to give the notice and, and going into the unknown. It is. It is. So, like, two things. So, I can give you the, going back to, like, it was 99. I was at Silicon Graphics. Remember, it was a peak of the dot-com era. Things were 
booming like hell, right? Uh, stocks were $1,000 stocks of every company. Um, so I think, look, leaving Silicon Graphics to start a company, you're right. I mean, once you leave something, you're resigning from your job and you have no pay. But uh, And then you're, th that's what I tell people is, look, you cannot do double duty. One thing I tell people is if you want to start a company, you got to go all in. You can't say, I'll stay in the company and then I'll do this. That's a disservice to yourself and the company and you'll never do full. So it has to be like a, like a poker. You've got to all go all in. If you're not going to do all in, don't start a startup. So you're right. By throwing that, it creates a necessity. So your time starts now. So it's not like you have all the time in the world, right? So when you then at that point, you have two, three months to create your project plan. You have your ideas. Then you go pitch that to investors. Meantime, you're trying to create, write the software, hardware. My first company itself has both software and hardware. So you've got to pull together your resources, put your own personal capital, build the hardware, software, see the value. First, understand what's the problem you're trying to solve. Talk to the customers, right? What's the business case? Where's the value prop? What is the burning need? How much people will pay? So I think you've got to like, I never went to MBA school, but starting a startup, if you do that, you don't need to go to MBA school. That's what I tell entrepreneurs. If you do a startup and you're successful, you don't need an MBA after that. You are the MBA. You can teach other people. And, and, and what do you think, you know, has kept you going from one company to the next? I mean, where's that drive coming from? And drive for me personally, look, everybody has differently. For me, the drive is look, solving a problem. I'm very much driven to solve industry problems. So once we see a problem, I feel like solving it. And that's what happened. So when I was at um, Silicon Graphics, the problem back then was you want to go solve a storage networking problem. Remember, it's a networking era at the big. You have the biggest server companies there. You have Sun Microsystem, Oracle, um, you have Silicon Graphics, IBM, uh, HP. They all have servers and storage, but there was no networking connecting servers and storage. I mean, that was, is there a problem to be solved or is it a nice to have? Do servers and storage need to talk to each other? Was there any, uh, what is the type of new application that we want to evolve, right? Remember, that's when internet was happening, e-commerce was happening. Able to provide non-disrupt to compute environment and storage. That drove the whole networking era, right? So I really enjoyed that. So every time I look at a problem and say, look, if that problem can be solved, can we go win that market? Can we solve it? Can we make a change? And that's the drive. I love that. And, uh, you know, before we go into the companies that you've done and the lessons learned, I got to ask you here, because, I mean, you've, you've gone through it all. I mean, through the dot-com boom, dot-com bust, uh, subprime, you know, uh, financial crisis, you know, wait, you know, now obviously with the venture boom, venture bust, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, other banks, you know, uh, behind, you know, the macro environment, you know, not the same as, as we had, you know, a year or two ago. So what have you learned about going through those cycles to as an entrepreneur? Uh, I think persistence, determination, don't give up. There, every company will have challenges. Every year there'll be challenges. Every company will be different, right? You'll have, so I think like even COVID, I, I thought I've seen everything, but two years back, COVID happened, right? So every time the challenges are different. Uh, I, I always tell that to even investors don't think that like, investors think that, okay, just because you have done it once or twice, the people will know it. I, even I've done it five, six times. I still don't know what, uh, right? Every time you're learning, right? That's something is you have to be there. And it has to be data-driven. See, particularly now that we are talking AI and data, my approach is, look, at the end of the day, you have to have a gut feel. You're the product. You're the owner. You're the founder of the company. You use your intuition, but your intuition should be grounded with some data, right? And not all bets are made equal, but you've got to make a bet. Stay with that bet. Be persistent. Don't give up. I love that. Now, let's go one by one. And what sure. I want you to tell me is, 
What were you guys doing in each one of those different companies and what was the lesson learned? So let's start with Sanera Systems. Yeah, so as I said, Sanera is a storage networking company. Storage networking means that one side you have servers and one side you have storage and you connect them. Like you think of like Cisco, like, and and we were acquired by EMC back then, right? So so we built the, the SAN switches for them. So this will be for every bank. Like today also, if you are, drawing any money from any financial institution, any large company, you're going through a sand switch that we built back there in 20 years back. So it will be deployed at companies like Goldman, JP Morgan, Bank of America, whereas on large telcos to every network, that's the problem we are solving it. What is the lesson we learned? Look, that is the time I learned through 9-11 happened. That was the shock, right? Till then, nobody knew. But like, um, I, was, I was like, that was a shock completely. We don't know how to operate. Everything was shut down. Wall Street was shut down. The barrier was shut down. People could not go to the office for a couple of months, right? We had to recover from the whole, right? Uh, and a lot of companies died because of that. And sometimes it's the luck, uh, right? For me, during that time, luck happened. Uh, we stayed with the company. We tried to push the company as much as we can. And we came out really winning on that market, right? But there's a lot of people who shut down companies right after 9-11. They shut down either they didn't have the lack of funds or they are good companies with funds. But look, there could be a lot of reasons why companies may not succeed. A lot of good companies don't succeed too, right? But sometimes you just have to understand and change your dynamics. You got to deal with the, uh, what I call, you know, life is like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get once you open the box. You may get milk chocolate, dark chocolate. You can get a brown chocolate. You got to take that. You have your limitations. And within those limitations, you got to do your job. So, so one thing that happened here is obviously the first thing you know, company first exit. So not bad at all. Eh? And uh, I guess, what do you do all of a sudden? I mean, there you guys, you know, got acquired for like 250, 300 million. I mean, you're coming from a very, you know, humble background. Come on, did you buy a car, a house? What did you do? <laughs> Look, once you have a wife and kids, um, my wife's name is Sunila and uh, she and me and we had our first baby back then. So look, life has to still continue, right? Um, uh, why did I do it? Look, it's very interesting. See, we sold our company or we got acquired, actually. But I never sell companies. That's number one. Once you put a sale on your thing, you're like a loser. If somebody wants to buy me, let them come to me. But I never sell. So once we got acquired, like I got, this is like 2003, I think, uh, maybe late 2002, 2003. Um, I was talking to Goldman Sachs. Goldman was on my board at uh, Sanera. I was talking to Goldman Sachs guys and I was talking to Redpoint Ventures guys and Menlo guys. You have to understand, back in, because of the 9-11 and after that, a whole bunch of scandals have happened, right? So people wanted to create a security risk compliance. They wanted to, to go into your backup tapes. They want to go to your documents. They want to go through your emails to search. There was no search back then. Like, there used to be Google search as an appliance. There used to be a company called Verity, right? But there was no company which will go through your emails, backup, and search. And if you have to get a lawyer, you have to call your lawyer, and lawyer will go through manually. Right, all that I could just so that's when we created what we call an enterprise search company called Casion. Right, it was a problem. So as soon as I sold it, I sold all this storage. Goldman comes to me and said, can you search all my documents and emails? Can you do some problem here?" Immediately, we started a company backing by Goldman, Redpoint, and Menlo called Casion. There we are by 2003, late 2003. I'm again back running another company um, with my co-founder Christos, and uh, that's it. So again, you're back to normal. Two people in a room. Right, the first lines of Java code, first lines of your uh, uh, your your uh, 
JavaScript code, right? It's like, it, that's the other thing that I enjoy is building from day one. And that's also scary, right? So when you start something, you really don't have anything else. You're writing your first PRD, MRD, your user interfaces. You have to think through it. And most people don't think that starting a company is about PowerPoints. It's not about your business plans and Word document. You have to have a vision as to what's the product look like, what's the lines of code looks like, what you are building it. So it's scary. And also it uh, also creates a lot of innovation during that time. Now, Casionas, again, you know, also acquired uh, by EMC. Now, now here, you know, one thing that is interesting is that you decided to stay for a few years. What, what, what do you, what, what, what drove that? Because I'm sure that now after having built, scaled, sold two companies, I'm sure that vesting and resting period, you know, was not that fun. Not necessarily. Look, it all depends on what you look. I usually live to the acquirer. Since this is a, your deal podcasting, it's you always as an entrepreneur, CEO, it's up to the acquirer. If they want you to stay, you should stay. If they don't want you to stay, you should not. When it comes to the CEO, CFO, usually the, those two roles, it's up to the acquirer what they want to do, right? Um, uh, definitely the uh, at casual time, EMC, Joe Tucci was the CEO, then Joe said, you got to stay and become a general manager to run this business, right? And whatever they want to do, you got to do that at that point, right? At that point, you, that's still your baby. You're still assimilating and integrating through their organization, but you're also running it to make it part of the bigger sales engine, go to market. So you got to do that. I really enjoy that. For, for me, I learned a lot under Judy's, uh, like who's who was there, everybody, right? You had uh, Paul Moriji was the CEO of VMware back then. You had Diana Green still there. You had um, Art Coviolo was there from RSA. Pat Galsinger just came from Intel to join us as a CTO. You had Frank Slootman came from Data Domain Acquisition. Right, I mean, it's everybody's everywhere. Like Dave DeWalt was there from Documentum. So I was like a small time, uh, no name company, CEO sitting in front of like, uh, it's like, have you seen the Godfather movie? It was like Godfather movie, right? Like Joe Duke <laughs> will be head of the table and everybody got to smooch his hand. Right, right. The big guys and the small guys. So, but I learned a lot how to run the QBRs, how to do this, go to market. So I learned a lot under uh, EMC. Uh, that's the second time they're buying it. So I'm pretty loyal to them, and uh, they've been nice to me. Very nice. Yeah, no like, kidding. I mean, sec second purchase, not bad. Now, now in this case, you know, like again, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So see us is the next opportunity that comes knocking. What were you guys doing there, and? And what was the lesson learned? Yeah, so look, I, I think um, that one was a very interesting one because remember back to like how ChatGPT is just happening now, right, with uh, all the whole world of AI and automation. Back then, the issue was uh, people, cloud was just happening. AWS just in, got released cloud, uh, S3 and EC2. So the question was, how can we dump the data into the cloud and how to do analytics on the cloud as a SaaS play, right? So the requirement from the customers was, I did not want to run analytics on my own data warehouse. Cloud became the data warehouse. Uh, Redshift started happening. People were putting data out there. Hadoop started happening their big data. If you remember the whole big data. And so people wanted analytics to be run on the compute in the cloud, analyze it, provide a, what I call visual, uh, interactive visualizations, right? You wanted to do dashboards, analytics, drill down, um, everything uh, from an automation, from a data warehouse to OLAP, to everything in the cloud. That is the problem as soon as we heard, we thought, look, it's got to be done in the cloud. And we did it pretty quickly, that whole, and by then we are done and started doing the go-to-market selling it. I think it was like maybe less than two years. 
uh, VMware came and acquired us. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Unbelievable. Now, obviously, third acquisition. What the, what have you learned about acquisitions? I know that, you know, before you were saying, I never sell a company. They always get acquired. So at this point, you know, with the third thing, transaction, what kind of patterns, you know, did you did you see? I mean, as a founder, what did you learn through going through all these different processes so that you can come out, you know, of a transaction like this, you know, on, on, on a high note? Yeah. So I think the key for all this, look, as I said, persistence. A lot of people think, see, it takes very long time to build companies, long time to build products. First version of the product will be barely good enough. Then... Once you go to the second version, it'll be good enough to do product market fit. By the time you're done with the third version of the product, you're doing early go-to-market. By the time you do fourth and fifth, it'll be the growth engine kicking in. So there'll be a lot of phases of the product evolution. I always tell people, by the time you're done, it'll take nine to eight versions of your product before you start hitting the scale of the product. So whether you do it as a standalone, whether you do it as a part of the acquired company, you got to stay and build the product and consistency and person. That's something is like you should be the last person trying to turn the lights off on any product or a company as a founder, right? So I think that's something is I definitely learned that you got to stay with the companies, make the companies build, and got to build it for scale, right? A lot of people build it for one, one single feature and say, I can add other features. You cannot. Once you're born as a dog, you're going to die as a dog. Very rarely you're going to become a cat. So it's very hard. And this is something a lot of investors also don't think that. They think, oh, Let's start a company in one area, one feature. Let's go deep into in that focus areas. If you do that, you cannot change it to the next one. It's not that easy to bolt on, right? So as a startup, so unless you are a good product, it has a good platform, you cannot scale to what it is. But at the same time, when you build a platform, you can't go to market with a platform. Nobody's going to buy a platform. People buy solutions to a problem, right, Alejandro? You have a problem, I'm going to solve the problem. Right? You cannot say, I need a hammer, but you go go buy a screwdriver. So understand the problem and the solution. But underneath, if you have a good platform, then you get to grow. That's the other lesson that I've learned is 
make sure you design a good platform, good product so that it has legs to last generations. Like my first company, Sanera Switch products are still used after 25 years. Every bank transaction, whether it's used as a part of a standalone company, as a part of an acquirer, the product is in production and being used. That gives you a lot of satisfaction. No kidding. Uh, so obviously, you know, in this case, after the transaction with VMware, you stayed there a little bit and uh, you worked for Pivotal 2 in conjunction. But then, you know, again, like always, another idea comes knocking. So that was Caspida. So uh, another great exit, you know, for about 300 million, you know, acquired by Splunk. So what were you doing at Caspida? What was the lesson learned? Yeah, so I think Caspida was a cybersecurity. Now, one thing you can see in my team, like I don't go after the same space. Every time I do something, I want to solve some fundamental problem in a new space, right? So this is 2014, I think. Um, the problem was cybersecurity. The way in which we ran into is the issues that are of the at that time. The problem is how do you detect external attacks and insider attacks? It's right. It's called the user behavior. How can I study the behavior of the attacker and see if, if somebody is lurking in our environment, in your networks, in your applications, in your um, in your uh, data center, right, in your cloud environment. So our goal is to detect bad actors, bad behaviors proactively. You're never going to be perfect. You're going to miss some. There'll be false positives, true positives, false negatives. But if you can do any prediction that is even 10% better, then it's better than having no, no prediction at all. So the U UBA was created called User Behavior Analytics as a category. Uh, we throw that. And... Um, as I said, Splunk came knocking on the door to acquire us, right? And uh, I liked Splunk a lot back then because, look, Splunk was a leader in the, what we call the IT services market. They just don't have, uh, they were just launching what we call SIM now. It's called security information uh, management, I think. Um, and that and that helped me, and I became the first general manager for uh, Splunk. That's fantastic. And obviously, you know, like there you did Splunk, you did ServiceNow as well. And then what happened? Then what happened? Another opportunity comes knocking. And that is the opportunity that you're pushing today, ICERA. So why did you think that the problem, you know, that you were encountering or that you were envisioning was meaningful enough for you to start ICERA? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, ICERA is a very interesting way how it happened, right? Um, uh, for me, it's look, as, as I was at ServiceNow, uh, this is now talking about 2016, uh, you have to understand is, look, if you are meeting, I, I know if you've been to Alejandro, you or your listeners or have you been to, I advise them to go and visit call centers, right? And the world has so many call centers everywhere, whichever country you are in. It could be in the U.S., India, China, Costa Rica, Philippines. Once you go to these call centers, contact centers, you can see it. They are manned by humans, right? They're, so these people are taking all our calls, whether it is for your refrigerator not working versus your TV issues, your uh, your Comcast issues to your... Bloomberg network issues. Now, these people are solving day in, day out the problems. And this is done highly. A lot of human people are involved to solve it. It takes time. You have a problem, you make a call, somebody talks to you. It's a multi-body involved with a lot of friction. My goal is, can we streamline the whole thing? Right? So in 2017, 18, when I started seeing this, and when I visited those, um, those customers and the problems, it was obvious that there was no chat GPT back then. There was no AI back then, right? It was still early days. All we had is what we used to call natural language processing, NLP uh, pipelines. There was to be a natural understanding. NLU was getting involved. There was no language model set. There were models called BERT just was happening. So 
Our goal is, can we understand human requests? When a human makes a phone call or an email or he or she chat, remember, there was no Microsoft Teams back then. There was no Slack. It was just early days. So question is, how can we provide a digital experience, voice experience, right? Through whatever channel you may come into, text, maybe SMS text, right? Is understand the request, like understanding the meaning and intent of user request and trying to solve their problem. If I can do that, even for 30-40%, that 30-40% request will not go to agents. It doesn't go to humans. By doing that, you improve the user experience to end user, improve the productivity, cut down the cost. Agent is happy because agent can do higher order items. So a lot of people don't understand. People in call center, they don't want to wake up and take a call from you or Andrew. How much are you want to talk to them? They don't want to talk to you. They want to solve complex problems, right? And they also want to move up in life. They want to be podcast interviewers. They want to be go to Disneyland, right? So the world has not given the chance for people in call centers to move up in life. To me, that was a great calling for me. This is not going to be easy. There, are Everybody in the world, all the big guys will uh, want us not to succeed because that's the status quo. You still want to open up tickets manually. You want to give it to your SaaS providers and you want to buy their software and give it to humans. I want to shift the whole model. Your total shift left where give the problem and solution to the users, empower them, provide a self-service. It's like think of the Uber model. Until Uber came in, we only had the taxi medallion business. They came and changed the revolutionized. So this industry shift will take years to make it. But I think right now, when we started, we thought it's going to be happening very well and it's happening. And with ChatGPT, there's tailwind on us, right? Everybody in the world wants to use generative AI models, ChatGPT models, LLMs. That became like a common language. Like if you don't know that in elementary school, people look down upon you, right? Yeah. So, so, so then in this case, I mean, upon Isera, you know, as, as you're saying, you know, like this problem that you guys are solving now, I mean, up until this point, I mean, you had sold now four companies. I mean, we can, we can safely say that over $600 million, you know, easy, right? In, in, in acquisitions, you know, just on the two that were at least disclosed. Uh, then probably much more on the other ones that uh, you're not spilling the beans here with us. But um but at this point, you didn't need really investors, eh, Mudo. You know, you had done pretty well for yourself, and I'm sure that you could even finance this thing. But you decided to bring on board people like Kosla Ventures, First Round Capital, uh, and, and Menlo Ventures. I mean, we're talking about, you guys have raised what? About $164 million? Is that it? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, right. well, I mean, why why did you get these investors? Why did you bring investor those investors, you know, to begin with, and specifically the ones that you brought in? Why? Yeah, no, uh, very good question. Actually, one of the best questions you asked me. The reason that look first is as an entrepreneur, everybody has a multiple ways to build. My way of building companies is with venture capitalists. I go to the early venture capitalists, what you call the early funds. These are like first round capital. These are true ventures, Menlo Ventures, Norwest. You mentioned Vinod Koshla, Koshla Ventures. These guys are the dude who did my Series A, Series B, right? Then I went to Icon Ventures. Then I went to Goldman Sachs for my last round, along with Tom Brower Growth Fund. The reason to go to VCs to me is it actually creates a very discipline, very what I call the very good audit, very makes a transparent company. You have a transparent financials. You have you have auditors coming in. You're make, you're running the company for with the people checks and balances. Right, there are a lot of people who want. There are a lot of other ways to build it. My approach is to go build it with VCs because 
these things takes not only capital, large capital, it also takes long time. It doesn't take with one person to solve the problem, right? So I knew back then, if you really want to solve this, this is going to take a five to 10 year horizon, takes many years, and more important, it takes many investors, large capital, and you won't need a right, a right investors to your point. I went back to, the, always I go back to the people who know me well, because if I know you well, Orlando, I will always work with you. There's no reason not to go back. Similarly, if I made money for you, you'll also come back to me. So that's why Menlo is a repeat investor. True Venture is a repeat investor, right? That if you see in my thing, most people are repeat investors on how we are doing. Goldman Sachs is a repeat investor. This is the fourth time I'm doing with Goldman Sachs, right? So that's a commonality that I look for is you also want to bring in a cross-pollination of new investors who know the market. Plus, you want to have some existing people that you know you, know you well, knows the company well. And you're talking, you, you, you've been mentioning the word, you know, people a lot. So, you know, whether it's people on the investment side, whether it's people on the team side, advisor side, right. what do you look for in people when you're surrounding yourself, you know, with, with these I folks? I think that's it, strong. Look, people, uh, most people uh, that I like to uh, see is that I want people that we hire are good leaders, good experts, people who have determination, who want to win. And this is going to be, and you have the stomach to go up and down. It's, I think I tell people startup is not for everybody. Startup is not for everybody at, at any point in time, right? So you have to figure out, is this a startup I want to join today at my point of career? And is it something that me and my family are going to support? You got to make the decision for yourself. But it's an all-in game. It's working at a startup and is so different than working at a large company because it exposes you. There is no fat in the system. So whatever work you do can make the company good or bad. So if you are not aware of that, you can't hide behind uh, the facts. So I think people who are uh, good at doing drill down, able to run their things, can scale up, scale down. You got to be good at everything. You can't say I'm only good at scaling down, but not scale up. Similarly, you can't say I'm good at scale up, but I can't scale down. You can't say I'm only good at managing people, but I won't be able to write code or I won't be able to write my own marketing plans or I won't be able to do my own product management, right? You got to be a journalist, right? You have to be an athlete, and you also have a determination and persistency to stay in the game for long. So, Mudu, you go to sleep tonight, and uh, you wake up in a world where the vision of Isera is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think the world of Isera is a co-pilot world, man. I think what Microsoft and OpenAI and ChatGPT have done is world. This AI should start happening. It's, everybody needs a co-pilot. I tell you what, for the next podcast show, you should use ICERA as a co-pilot to tell you who you should interview. You may still reject it. There should be Alejandro co-pilot for you, right? Everybody should have a co-pilot. Use AI to it to better our every department, right? Whereas IT, customer service, a human. There will be a co-pilot avatar for you, which will go talk and take your own meetings, right? So that's a future world that I'm seeing is, look, we won't know where AI will take, but next 10 years will be one of the golden ages that I can think of, right? Um, it's going to happen. People will come with new applications, new services. Uh, we are just starting. I think. I think 2023 is like I call it uh, AI uh, AI inception. It's like the ground zero of this year. So the next ten years will be like one of the best golden ages that I can think of in AI. I love it. I love it. I mean, without a doubt, you know, it's ramping up very, very quickly. Now we've been talking about the future here, Mudo. We're going to talk about the past, but we're going to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. So imagine I'm able to bring you into a time machine back in time. Okay. I'm bringing you back in time, perhaps to that moment that you were in Yale, 
and uh, you were perhaps, you know, living in Hartford. And um, let's say you are able to have a chat, have a sit down with that younger self, that younger Mudo. And you're able to give that younger Mudo one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I didn't just do what I just did. I think the same thing. Look, I was at Yale in 1990 or at New Haven. Just be hungry. I was hungry to learn. I think just keep doing the same thing what I did, man. There's nothing different. So if I were to do it all over again, I'd do exactly the same way. The playbook, right? Uh, I couldn't have asked it. I, again, sometimes I, I got lucky along the way. At Yale, I met one of the best professors. I met great professor at UCLA. One of my professors got Turing Awards. And then I met people like Professor David Patterson and Professor John Hennessy. They're like, these are industry legends. So for me, you can't make up luck. So that's why I said, if I have to do it all over again, I'll pick luck anytime. And you create luck because luck is preparation meets opportunity. And in this case, Mudo, as they say, once you're lucky, twice you're good. And not only you've done it, but you've done it now five times, four times already successfully. Mudo, what is the best way for people that are listening to reach out to you and say hi? Oh, please, yeah, please reach out to me. Go to www.isera.com. Go to my LinkedIn page. Uh, please reach out. I'm, we are all, always hiring. We're hiring every department. So if you are out there looking to join ISRA, please reach out to us. If you're a customer and you want to try the product, please reach out. More importantly, listen to Alejandro's podcast. Hopefully, give us a feedback and give him and me so that we can do next time better. Amazing. Well, Mudo, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, it was my pleasure and my honor too. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.